This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Every so often, a gimmick comes along that's so simple that it captures the hearts and minds of anyone who hears about it. From the fidget spinner to the Snuggie in more recent times. From the hula hoop and silly putty of yesteryear, there is one fad that stands out above all the rest in American culture. Here's Jesse to tell the story. Born December of 1936, Gary Ross Dahl was an American copywriter, entrepreneur, and the creator of the Pet Rock. Born in North Dakota and raised in Spokane, Washington, his mother was a waitress and his father was a lumber mill worker. While living in Los Gatos, California in 1975, he was sitting in a bar listening to people complain about the everyday burdens of looking after their pets. So he jokingly suggested to them that they might be better off having rocks for pets. After all, a rock wouldn't need to be fed, walked, bathed, or groomed, and it would never die, become sick, or disobedient. Low maintenance. So Gary Dahl begins to take his own joke a little seriously and drafts a 32-page instruction manual for said pet rock. Full of puns and gags, he called it the care and training of your pet rock. There's nothing common about the genuine pedigree of pet rocks, it reads. Their ancestors can be found amongst the rubble of the pyramids, the cobblestone streets of ancient European cities, and the Great Wall of China. Further instructions show how to train your pet rock to stay, sit, heal, and roll over. It's basically a box full of dad jokes. The biggest expense was cutting air holes into the boxes that the pet rocks came in, because they had to breathe after all. The rocks themselves cost somewhere around one penny each to import from Mexico's Rosarito Beach. The straw bed that the rock sat on was acquired for pretty much nothing. As a freelance advertising copy editor genius, Dahl crafts a carefully written press release, and it works. Newsweek picks up the story with a half page. He even gets booked on The Tonight Show, twice. For those fortunate few who do not know, pet rocks have been adopted and pampered by owners who claim stones are cleaner, quieter, easier to care for than other pets, and less likely to run away, die, or multiply. The pet rock begins its life on the beaches of Baja, California. Dahl is the man who created the Pet Rock, an idea, he says, whose time has come. It's been incredible. We we mailed our first Pet Rocks to the stores October 1st, and by Christmas we'll have sold well over a million units. Uh, That that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. On the declining curve, we'll probably sell another million or two. And then you'll be out of the Pet Rock business? Then I'll be out of the rock business and into some other insane scheme. (laughs) Or lying on a beach someplace, not caring about it. Spokesmen for the May Company say that they are beginning to get returns of the pet rock. That one woman who bought one of these brought it back saying it was moving in the box when she bought it, but when she got it home, it stopped moving. Another wrote a letter to the store saying after she taught her rock a number of tricks, the rock died. And she had to give it a decent burial in the backyard. The pet rock sold for $3.95 each, earning somewhere around $1 per unit in profit. Newspapers began printing stories about how pet rocks were now flying off the shelves. Stores couldn't keep up. 
which made Americans want them even more. Starting in September of 1975 and sales peaking around Christmas, Dahl was shipping 10,000 rocks every day. America had pet rock fever. Sales tanked by February, with 1.5 million units sold and $6 million in gross profits. One day my little boy came home just as proud as he could be. He said, Dad, I've got something here I think you should see. He came straight home from school that day, didn't even stop to roam. He rushed in the house with a silly grin and said a pet rock followed him home. And I said, what? He said, honest, Dad, it just followed me home. I mean, I was there and he was there and, well, we was there. Oh, Dad, can I keep him? Please, Dad. He won't be much bother. His house broken, Dad. Then he said, what you don't know about, don't knock. I'm in love with my pet rock. What you don't know about, don't knock. I'm in love with my pet rock. After a court ordered six-figure payout to his original investors, it's hard to say exactly how much money Gary Ross Dahl took home. But it's safe to say he'll go down in history as the guy who made a million dollars selling rocks. He went on to sell other less-than-successful gimmicks like sand-breeding kits. And it's dumber than it sounds. But he also went on to write a popular book called Advertising for Dummies. Gary Dahl passed away on March 23, 2015, at the age of 78, in his home in Jacksonville, Oregon. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I came with instructions that made you laugh. It wasn't very much, just a paragraph. You think that shredded paper is all I need? Follow my instructions from the box and reread. I'm your pet And thanks to Jesse for this piece of Americana. And we know these things come and we know these things go. And I think we know it while we're doing it, while we buy the pet rock or the lava lamp or the hula hoop or the Rubik's Cube or the Chia Pet or Disco or the Macarena or the Electric Slide or the Clapper or the Beanie Baby or the Furby and the Slinky and the Squirt Gun. And we know we can keep going. The Poppets, the Whoopee Cushions. We know what these are, but the big fad story that we covered here on Our American Story is the pet rock. And my goodness, it's less likely to die, run away, or multiply, said one of the world's greatest promoters of nothing. And it's just a part of American heritage to peddle nonsense. And we love telling these stories here on Our American Stories. If you've got a favorite fad or a favorite product that came and went, tell us your story about it. I know I lived through disco, and I have the graduation picture to prove it in high school. And my goodness, what we all look like. All of us look better in our 50s and 60s than we do back in high school, given the hair, the bow ties, the suede, the really funky colors, and those platform shoes. It was a really difficult time to meet a girl or a boy. The disco year, one of the greatest and worst fads in American history, all brought on by one movie, Saturday Night Fever. All the boys wanted to be the boy in that movie, and all the girls wanted to be the girl, and thank goodness, well, thank goodness that fad died within about 18 months. This is Our American Stories, the story of the pet rock. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
This is our American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And our next story comes to us from Monty Montgomery, who brings us the voice of a young woman who grew up in the inner city. Denisha Merriweather grew up in East Jacksonville, Florida. All growing up, I remember hearing stories of how the community was excited and people were engaged and they knew one another. There was this this culture and there would be cookouts. People, people knew each other by name, people just engaging with one another friendly. And as the years went on, people stopped having those cookouts. More people, instead of going to work, were just walking around the neighborhood aimlessly looking for where they can, I guess, get their next hit. Gang violence increased, and my family was, uh, I'm assuming, a part of that. I would walk around the neighborhood, and people would know me. You know, they would say, oh, that's such and such a little daughter. You don't mess with the Merryweathers. They're going to get you. People knew the Merryweathers, and not in a good way. And I talk about, you know, how when I was growing up, when I walk around the street, I wore my last name, Merriweather, as a badge of honor because everybody knew who I was, everybody knew my family, and I didn't think it was, you know, I thought it was great. But unfortunately, it also followed me other places. It followed me into, like, the after-school program. It followed me into school, and we moved a lot, lived in hotel rooms. We lived on people's couches, and I didn't know that that meant we were homeless. I just thought, oh, well, we're just, we're just moving to a new place. How I grew up, you don't ask adults questions. You just say, okay, you know, like you don't ask them questions. If things are happening, you just, you know, you, you just go along with what's happening. So I never really asked too many questions about what was happening around me. I just observed a lot of things and put my head down and said, yes, ma'am. The dad that I grew up with was not my biological father, but my biological dad, I didn't ask a lot of questions about him, but I heard stories about how my mom just had, she just went to prom with this nice young man. He was so nice and now here you are. And I was just like always intrigued about this story because I never heard much about him. But supposedly at one moment, his name was Ernest. Then at another moment, his name was Dennis. And then, so I, 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 my biological dad, up until even today, I'm it's still very cloudy and blurry. I'm not sure, but I do remember this one scene of a guy showing up at our house. It was the hotel. Showing up at the hotel, and he brought me a necklace. And I was like, thanks, you know, went back to playing. And um, my mom said, oh, that was your, that was your biological dad, but you better not tell your stepdad that he showed up. And I was like, yes, ma'am, because you do not ask questions about what is going on. My mom had me at 16 years old. She dropped out of school soon after, and she still wanted to party. She still wanted to have a good time, and so, she left me with one of her friend's mom. That started when I was three months old. At first, I would always resent my biological mom. Like, 
you know you never you you just started me off wrong you know you didn't really care from the beginning but I didn't see that that's actually she did care she left me in a safe place so she could go and kind of reclaim her childhood and so that's how I met this miraculous woman who I call my godmother had was not christened and she was not like this was a very informal relationship like here's a baby can you take care of this baby and it wasn't until I was about maybe I, I, these are all obviously I don't remember three months but I think around one years old or so I think that's what people tell me she told my my godmother told my biological mom listen just leave her here go out and have your life go out and do what you want but coming in at three in the morning to pick her up and this in and out is not gonna work so just leave her here come back when you're ready to get her and we'll go from there and she did and from what I'm told she didn't show back up until like maybe a few years later wanted to take me back they went to court they had joint custody of me so I was going back and forth between my godmother's house and my biological mother's house back and forth back and forth back and forth I would spend the weekdays with my mom my biological mom and go with my godmother on the weekends. I remember crying all the time because I did not want to go back to my mom's house. Every Sunday, I just would bawl because it was just so hard. Because we were so unstable, we were moving from hotel room to this place, to a neighbor's house, to a sofa. And at my godmother's house, I had everything, I was spoiled, it was fantastic. Went to church, had stability, just knew what she had a set of goals. She held me to her standard. Things made sense. I wasn't just being told just random crazy things to do without really understanding. She had a parenting skill. She was a real, she was a mother. And so it was just always a, it was, it was always very, very different. I would always, like I told you, would go and cry. It was, it was pretty bad. I would even, by the time I would get home to my mom's house at night, would still just be crying and she would beat me and tell me, don't just stop crying, just be quiet. You're not gonna go back. And it had gotten kind of bad that I would skip weekends of not going to see my godmother because the previous weekend had just been so bad and I would not want to come back to live with my biological mom. So she would say, you're going to skip the next weekend as punishment for not wanting to come back. But my favorite aunt, who was pretty much a saint during the entire process, when I was 13, she told me, you know you don't have to stay with her. You can leave. And so I thought about it for so long. It was on my mind for so long. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And something happened. I can't even remember to this day what, but I looked at my biological mother like right in the eye. She made me so upset one day. And I told her, I am not coming back. I'm leaving. I am not coming back here. I do not want to stay with you anymore. 
and she cursed me out and she told me to to leave like I but I want it better like I want it more I saw on the weekends just two days sometimes out of a week how other people lived I would go to church with my godmother participate in the church gatherings um, see how her family lived and interacted with one another and I was jealous absolutely jealous and I didn't know why I had to put up with all of this stuff just with all of the life that was given to me and she told me I could go and I did and at 13 I started to live permanently with my godmother it was the best thing that could have ever happened And my goodness, what a story. You're listening to Denisha Merriweather. And my goodness, just what chaos and what a way to grow up. Uh, A mom who's not old enough to be a mom and really doesn't want to be one. Loves her daughter, I guess, but doesn't know how to. And the daughter getting torn between a biological mother and a godmother who's really a parent. And she knows it. Kids know the difference. Listen to the wisdom in this kid. She wanted just to be normal. And I mean normal, normal, not like, you know, I have to fit in. Just like a normal life, church, love, constancy, not moving around, sleeping from couch to couch. When we come back, we'll continue the story of Denisha Merriweather. And by the way, we want your story, stories like this, because they're so important. Not all people come from perfect families, and there are no perfect families. And we like to hear from every kind of upbringing, including the tough ones, because they are instructive. And ultimately, the biological mom let her girl go. And as her own daughter said, it was the best thing that ever happened to her. And it probably wasn't easy for the biological mother to do, but she probably deep down inside knew it was best and that she just couldn't be a mom to her own daughter. When we continue, Denisha Merriweather's story here on Our American Story. And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Denisha Merriweather, who grew up in the inner city of Jacksonville, Florida. My first education memory, I think I was in about the second grade, I was a, well, I wouldn't say terrible, but I, I would not want me as a student today but I think I was in the second grade and I had to use the restroom. And I asked my teacher like, can I go to the restroom? And she said, no. And I was like, excuse me? Like, I can't go to the restroom. 
So I'm sitting there, I'm like raising my hand. I'm like, okay, maybe this is the type of teacher. She's like lame and she wants you to raise your hand. I remember like thinking these as a second grader, like, okay, I'm gonna raise my hand so I can go to the restroom. So I'm raising my hand, wiggling in my seat, trying to get this lady's attention to let me go to the restroom. And she did not answer my hand. And I yelled again, I have to go to the restroom. And she said, no, when I ask you to do something, you don't do it, but now you want me to do something for you. And so, no, you're not going to the restroom. And I, you know, I revved up. I was like, okay. And I walked out, <laughs> I walked out of the classroom. I was like, peace. I went to the restroom. I think I stayed in the restroom for like maybe 10, 15 minutes. Came back, you know, strutting like, mm-hmm, can't tell me what I'm not gonna do, stupid teacher. And I sat down, she told me get out, and I was like, no. She's like, get out and go to principal. I was like, no. And she picked me up and started to like try to pull me out of the class. I remember like grabbing onto the table, grabbing onto the wall, like crying, screaming, kicking her, trying to stay in class. And she won. She like took me in principal's office. I spent most of my time in the principal's office and I just sat there and was just like, stupid teacher. But yeah, that's, that's my earliest memory of school. <laughs> But we didn't really go to school. Like, if my mom f was tired, she didn't take us to the bus stop and we would just sleep in. It's like, cool, no school today. If it was raining outside, we didn't go to school. If it was too hot, we didn't go to school. So we weren't really in school a lot. I remember my mom would go to, she went to jail like a couple times because we weren't going to school. I, re I remember that because then all of a sudden it was like, get your home, you know, bleep the bleeps out of here and just go, just walk to school, I don't care. So I wasn't really in school. And when I was in school, I hated being there. We changed so much that there was never any significant reason for me to make friends. And the teachers didn't like didn't like us at all. They heard Meriwether was coming through the door and they were just like, you know, okay. The standard was very low for me to do well and I didn't do well. I was very behind. I remember that. I remember getting picked on. I remember trying to read and just stumbling all the time over words and having kids laugh at me. So by the third grade, there's the test that you have to take in order to pass to the next grade. And I failed the test. And so that meant I had to either do summer school or repeat the third grade. To do summer school, all that was required was for my mother to sign a piece of paper to do summer school. She didn't sign the papers. So I failed third grade. And so that next year, I was like, this sucks. I got picked on so much. And so in turn, I picked on people. I was not an angel child to just sit back and say, oh, I was quote unquote bullied. You know, I had to earn my right, mark my space and tell people like, 
okay, I belong here and now that I'm a year behind, I've, I've been here before, so don't mess with me. I knew all the tricks of, you know, and so by the next year, third grade, I failed again from the same thing. Just didn't get a piece of paper signed. Couldn't read, was low in math. And fourth grade, I was accepted into this, what was called the STAR program. And it's some acronym for something, but basically students getting into the right grade program. And I was in the classroom with people who were three and four grades behind. And this is in fourth grade. Three and four grades behind, I was two grades behind. I always had a problem, like issue, talking too much in class and just being extra. And so I would always get on my report card, like Denisha should talk less in class. Like Denisha needs to pay attention in class. And I'm like, geez, he's like, God, let me be me. So in the fourth grade, I was like, I have to do this. You know, I have to do well, just can't get in trouble. And there was this, it was a talent show. We all were doing acts and stuff in the school. We were the special population. We were the special kids in the school. And so we were able to participate. I wanted to participate. I remember I wanted to sing this song by Yolanda Adams. And I practiced so much. I was also very bad. So my teacher would threaten me, Denisha, if you do not do well, if you do not be good, you're gonna get kicked out of the talent show. I will write myself notes. Denisha, do not talk in class. Denisha, do not talk. Be good. Just pages and pages and pages of notes to myself. Denisha, do not talk in class. I failed, obviously. But I remember just being so excited for a talent show. When the time came, right before I was gonna go on, he told me, and I remember that guy's name, Mr. Malloy, Denisha, you are, you know what you thought you were going to participate in the talent show? No, you, you, you were terrible. Like he didn't, probably he didn't say terrible, but he told me no. He said, absolutely not. Go back to your seat. You're not going to participate. And I was, I was devastated. I was not, um, I, I was distraught. And from that moment, I just remember this click going off in my head of just anger, frustration at every single last teacher. No one seemed to really want to help me. Everyone just seemed to just criticize me all the time from early on when I would just walk in the classroom and sigh or get out of my, every teacher just dismissed me. Get out of my classroom, go to the principal's office, you're not going to, no, 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 no. It was never a spirit of like helping me. Like nobody was really like actually trying to help. It was just because of your actions, there's are consequences. I'm not gonna try to figure out why you're acting like this. I'm just gonna, just no. And I, I, I think that was the moment in my mind when I was like, these crappy teachers, these people don't care. They don't really care about me. Not because of the talent show, or that was just when the light bulb went off. Like, they don't actually care. They don't really care about me. So I don't care either. And it all makes complete sense from her point of view and from the teacher's point of view. And we're hearing a unique voice. We're listening to Denisha Merriweather. 
tell her story, her education story, which really has so much more to do with what's going on in school. It has to do with what's going on back at home and that disconnect between those two things. And the teachers, well, just being overwhelmed and perhaps not one of them having the right empathetic skill set to get this girl aside and really figure out what's going on, really get under the hood. And it's hard. It's not easy. When we come back, we continue with Denisha Merriweather's story in her own words here on Our American Stories. we continue here with Our American Stories and Denisha Merriweather and her own story. When we last left off, she had failed the third grade and not just once. In the summer before my sixth grade year, that was during the same time when I told my mom that I did not want to stay with her anymore. I went to live with my godmother and my godmother She wanted to find a good place for me all the way around. By that time, the church, my childhood church, the church that we'd been attending, I'd come with her on the weekends, they built a school. And she wanted me to go to that school. Of course, she didn't have no way to pay for that school. However, despite not having the money, Denisha and her godmother were given financial assistance by one of Florida's scholarship programs which is run by Step Up for Students. And this program is set up where donations come from either companies or individuals themselves. They're able to get a tax credit for giving a charitable contribution to a scholarship granting organization. And these scholarship granting organizations then in turn, which is Step Up for Students, give scholarships to students so they can attend a private school. So it's just a fantastic way where individuals are literally donating to fund students to go to great schools all across Florida. But despite getting into the school, Denisha was still far behind. But this time, things would be much different. The summer before I started at my school, take a academic test to see what level I was on. I was very low, needless to say. And one of my teachers, she agreed to meet with me. I was not just low in reading, I was low in math. I didn't know my times tables. And she met with me one-on-one. I would go to her house during the summer. I would stay after school when she was setting up for the school year. It was very different. I knew this lady because she she went to the church too. So I, I knew I was comfortable with her in some way. And I was, I thought it was just gonna be a bunch of fun and games, to be honest. I was like, oh, I'm gonna go 
to her house, but she really, you know, cracked the whip. I don't know, but we'd studied and I learned my timetables. I was reading. She did not let up. She was a student at Jacksonville University and I remember going with her to her classes too. And so she pretty much every day during the summer would pick me up or I would get dropped off and I would trail her wherever she went. And that's, that was my life during the summer. But although I was still kind of nervous about the start of the year at this new school, I was kind of used to going to a new school, though I knew what, you know, I knew the, the parade, how things were gonna play out. The teachers were gonna act like they were so happy to be there. And they would smile, greet us, the classrooms would be so beautiful with the freshest, you know, decorations and all that kind of stuff, but it will wear off very soon, you know. And I, I knew that for a fact because of that was just how that was just how it went. Sure enough, on my first day of school, the teachers were there greeting us with big smiles, hugging everybody, the classrooms were beautiful. And the, the teachers were just so happy to see us. And I was like, yeah, I know this song very well. And the song is gonna end. The song never ended, like literally every day until I graduated, teachers were doing the same thing. And even till I graduated, that never became common. It was still a bit unsettling that it never stopped. In the sixth grade, I was in a class with students, of course, who were all younger than me, and I had my guard up because I knew what was going to come. Teacher would call on me to read. They would laugh at me, and I would have to claim my space and let people know that I am nothing to mess with, like, do not mess with me. I remember my teacher calling on me to read and I was still stumbling. Nobody laughed. I looked around and was waiting, like waiting to cut someone, you know, with my eyes and like get ready for the playground. Like I was trying to figure out who the big dog in the class was so that I could like bring them down. Nobody laughed at me. Even a couple students in math, like they would voluntarily like try to help me. And it was all very new. I was waiting. I can't tell you how long I waited for some monster to present itself at that school so that I can fight back. I was not innocent when I first got there. Of course, I'm telling you, like, I was waiting patiently and I would sometimes pick a fight. I would um, challenge my teachers. I would sass talk them. And I often found myself in in-school suspension, which was news to me because I never heard of in-school suspension. I only knew of suspension. This one time I was in ISSP, the guy who was over it this time. He was also part of the church. He was in the military and a firefighter. I didn't understand how he did them both, but that's what he told us all. 
and I just knew he was just big and tall, just towered over, over me. He was um, in charge of giving me my work and just checking in on me that time in in-school suspension. He came to me and he said, Denisha, when is this going to stop? Well, when, when are you going to stop acting like this? Do you want to be in jail? And I like started crying. I was like, nothing before it had got to me. You know, I don't care. You can drag me out of the classroom. You can send me home, call me stupid, fail me, fail me again, take away something that's so important to me. My life is crap. You know, I, I d d didn't see the meaning in, at 13. My life was just very meaningless and I was just taking part in whatever it threw because I had to, I had no control. And in that statement, I rem even like now I'm like, oh, because I realized that I guess I, I didn't have to go to jail that was the norm and he was asking me do you want to do you want to be in jail do you want to go to jail because of how you're acting and I think that was like the first time that I realized that my actions like my actions like can determine my outcome not because of everybody else and he was basically telling me that how I decided to act all these many, many years, I would end up being in jail. And I was like, no, like, that's not what I, and I'm very like childish. I don't wanna go to jail, no, I don't wanna go to jail. Like, no. Um, and that's when at, at Xpree, at the private school that I was going to, I decided to lay off the crap and to take ownership of my, of my behavior to do better, and I did it. I don't think I would have graduated from high school if I had stuck with the district public school. I'd seen so many of my family members, friends, who dropped out of school. I think I would have dropped out too. I think I would have been a dropout, I would have had a baby, and I would have probably been working. I think I would have worked maybe at a McDonald's, some fast food place. That would have been my ultimate success story of having a job. That would have been a success. Just seeing how my community and people in my community um, worked. I became the first in my family to graduate from high school, which was not the norm. I got a college degree. I went away to college. And then I went to grad school. And then I moved to DC to work at the US Department of Education. I lived a fairy tale life compared to other members in my family. And it would not have been possible if I didn't receive a quality education. And I wouldn't have been able to receive that education if I didn't receive a scholarship to go to that private school. It's become a domino effect. Education literally saved my life. And great job on that piece by Monty Montgomery, and you've been listening to Denisha.
Meriwether's story. And my goodness, thank goodness for that one big man. And all he said was, well, he didn't say anything. He asked a question, do you want to go to jail? And suddenly that was that moment where she realized she, she could take ownership of her own life. And thank goodness also for that scholarship program in Florida. And there are so many like it around this country. And they make a difference in people's lives. And listen to her life, the first in her family to graduate from high school, a college degree, a master's, the Department of Education, and she's now the Director of Family Engagement at the American Federation for Children, which lobbies for kids who wouldn't otherwise have anyone lobbying for them. Join their movement at federationforchildren.org. Denisha Merriweather's story here on Our American Story. cars even before he came over here this was the one he wanted more than anything else in the world and here it comes mario the checkered flag of victory he's done it this is lee habib and this is our american stories and you heard the call at the indy 500 in 1969 and the man we're about to talk to in our american dreamers series won that race and it's quite a life story And, of course, it's the story of Mario Andretti. Now, you know he's won the Indy 500, the Daytona 500, Formula One World Championships, Pikes Peaks, Hill Climb, and, my goodness, a racing icon would be, well, just selling him short. And joining us to talk for the hour in our American Dreamer series, Mario Andretti. Let's start where we always like to start all of our interviews in the beginning. Tell us about where you were born and tell us a little bit about your parents. Well, I was born in Italy, um, and the region is uh, Istria, and however, now it's uh, Croatia. And there's uh, the story, obviously, it's one of the reasons why uh, the family immigrated to the States, because um, I was born in 1940, at the beginning of uh, World War II, and uh, uh, that region was uh, under Italy, uh, as it had been, but... Uh, after the war, uh, Italy lost the war, so they lost territory, and that's the territory they lost. Uh, and uh, uh, Yugoslavia occupied the region under hardline communism, under Marshal Tito. And uh, there was a choice for all of uh, the uh, inhabitants of the area to uh, succumb to communism or to maintain the Italian citizenship uh, uh, to uh, leave home and uh, become um, refugees, basically, uh, back in mainland Italy. And uh, and my family chose that, you know, the latter part uh, uh, to uh, maintain the uh, Italian uh, citizenship. And uh, we were refugees uh, in the city of Lucca in Tuscany for seven and a half years uh, before uh, my dad had uh, the opportunity to... um, 
to come to America. We had uh, relatives uh, on my mother's side living in uh, America here, in, in fact, in Nazareth, where I live now. And um, and this, it was suggested that why don't you come here? Uh, we would uh, guarantee um, that you have a home, you know, and that's what they had to do to in order to, to obtain visas. And that's the story. And what did your dad do, Mario, there uh, in, in Italy? What did he do for a living? And what was it like for you as kids? I mean, you went from having a home to living through war-torn Europe to now living in what I guess you could just call a, a camp. Almost, a, it sounds like a not a prison camp because it wasn't, but a refugee camp couldn't have been that, that plush. Well, no, it wasn't. Uh, well, actually, uh, yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, it was nothing normal about what happened to us, obviously. Uh, and uh, but uh, credit to my father. First of all, uh, the first part of the question. My dad uh, uh, was administrator of uh, land holdings from the family uh, on his uh, on his mother's side because he lost his. Uh, his parents at age two and four, respectively, and he was raised by uh, a priest, the uncle priest, and but the family on that side owned uh, about 2,000 acres of land, about 2,100 acres, and uh, seven tenants, and my dad was the administrator of that, of those holdings, and basically he was a farmer, and uh, so he had no other skills. You know when we um, uh, when he moved on, and uh, that was a difficult part, obviously, uh, to be able to obtain uh, a professional job of some kind. And uh, and when we were while we were in a camp, as you said, I mean uh, conditions were very very basic. But uh, again, my dad always provided for us. Uh, we were always. Uh, dressed properly and uh, went to school and uh, never cold and uh, never hungry you know he always took took care of the family uh, that's a very proud man and that's something that I've always looked up to be, to him because of uh, of that he had uh, he maintained that responsibility in the best possible way and he never quit Mario it sounds like he never quit on you his family despite the the toughest circumstances so you're living in Italy uh, and you you see uh, an auto race, and there's one particular man that that moves you to think about, or at least dream about, uh, automobiles and car racing. Who is that man? What was that race in Italy? Well, the race was uh, the uh, Italian Grand Prix in 1954, and uh, the man was my idol. He became my idol. It was Alberto Ascari, who was at the time current world champion. Uh, for Ferrari, and uh, as you can imagine, as an Italian driving Ferrari and and being uh, so strong uh, as kids, uh, I be you know I was very impressed by that and taken in all the way. And uh, as an idol, he uh, he just actually helped shape my future. To be honest with you, in my own mind, because between uh, my twin brother Aldo and myself. Uh, from there on, we did not have a plan B. I always say that, and that's a fact. You know, this is something that uh, we wanted to pursue no matter what, had no idea how or when, 
you know, things were going to happen because there was, um, you know, a lot of uncertainties in our lives. And uh, even as kids, you could obviously uh, understand that. But um, but the dream never faded. You know, the dream stayed strong. And uh, at first opportunity, uh, you know, we pursued it. You know, when we came to the States, two years later, Aldo and I started building a car to race locally. We're going to hold that thought. And when we come back on the other end, this incredible life story, a story that started in Italy, that was impacted by political tumult in Europe and ended in a little town in Pennsylvania called Nazareth, the life of Mario Andretti. When we come back, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Around the world, ask anybody, you know, who is, who is the greatest American racing driver, I, I, I think 90%, literally, of the people around the world would say Mario Andretti. You just heard from auto sport writer Gordon Kirby describing the career of Mario Andretti. He's one of the great sports writers on automotive sports. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Dreamers segment. And we continue our conversation with Mario Andretti. You were lucky in this respect. You, you come into a place called America and to a small town called Nazareth. Not far away is a little dirt track, from what I, from what I understand, Mario. Right. And you and your twin brother, without your dad, I don't think your dad would have been a big fan of this and wasn't. Uh, talk about what you guys did. What was that first car? By the way, we love just asking people what their first cars were anyway. But what was that first car? And what did you and Aldo do? What was the first race? Talk about both of those things. Well... First of all, the uh, the car that we built was uh, a 1948 Hudson Hornet, which was uh, actually um, a car a car that was uh, brand that was very successful in NASCAR racing, and that was uh, not popular that car here at this local level. But uh, but we chose that, you know, with the help of some other, you know couple other friends uh, which you always have the scientist somewhere that does the thinking <laughs> yep. and, uh, and we followed that advice and um, and we built that car and and uh, but uh, we didn't dare tell my dad because there were so many things uh, here um, you know he knew that we were following motor racing and um, and we were all in and as kids, however, okay, all right, the kids are impressed by something. And uh, then Alberto Scari is killed in, in, in the following year, 1955. Uh, on the way over on the ship, Conte Biancamano, uh, during the time that the 24 Hours of Le Mans was running, that's the time when uh, a Mercedes um, uh, went into the crowd and killed 85 people. So, so many negatives about the sport, always, you know, just fatalities here and there. Well, you know, my dad was certainly not a race fan of any kind. He never pursued, but uh, the only news that he was ever, uh, you know, that was ever coming his way was negative. So, uh, seeing 
for us kids, you know, to even when we would hint about racing, he said, oh, kids are crazy, don't even think about it type of thing. So uh, he certainly did not in any way understand how strong we uh, believed in it and how strong, you know, how the passion that we already had developed. So anyway, we started building this car, and I didn't dare tell him, you know, uh, anything about it. And um, this was in 1957, two years after we arrived here. And um, in 1959, I took, we figure uh, it will take us four years to build this car, you know, to get all the money together and everything, uh, because you had to be 21 to race legally in those days, race professionally. Uh, and uh, so we figured we got time, but the car was finished uh, two years later in 1959. We were only 19, and we figured, you know what, we're not going to look at this car for two years before we race it. So uh, we had uh, we fudged the uh, birth date on the licenses and uh, keep saying, you know, which is a fact in those days, obviously there was no computer, so yep, you know, yep. it was easy to get by with that, and uh, we started racing at age... 19 without my dad knowing and the only defense that we had on that uh, or the buffer that we had there was the uh, language barrier you know because my dad obviously did not learn the language um, as quickly as we did uh, <laughs> so uh, you know things because we were winning races and uh, you know even uh, you know I keep saying this uh, which is a fact and uh, it at work, you know, his boss used to, you know, try to tell him, oh, your kids are really doing well. They just want to, he didn't understand. He thought right. that the boss was t- telling him how good he was at his job. So, um, again, it wasn't until the end of the season at the very last race, an invitational race, that uh, Aldo uh, almost killed, you know, was almost killed in that race. He had a bad accident, which, uh, you know, we had a... Um, Actually, uh, fractured skull and all that. So he was in a coma for you know for a long time, and uh, he was even given his last rites that time. And my dad didn't even know it, but he, that's how he found out. And he almost felt vindicated. You know, see, I told you guys. You know, <laughs> type of thing. Yep, yep. And by the way, we we recall we we spent about an hour just uh, talking about your story. And Aldo had said it. He was sure glad you had to tell him. You guys yeah, were racing. When Aldo finally came around weeks later, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, took him a while. After he opened his eyes and so forth, you know, took him a while to actually speak. The first sentence that he said, he says to me, he says, I'm sure, I'm sure glad you had to be the one to face the old man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. We got him back. <laughs> uh, so your, you, your career, your, your brother was racing, uh, but you, you stuck with it all the way. I want to talk to you about your mentors in this world of racing. Most business people have mentors, and I think athletes have coaches, mentors who bring them along. Who were who were key people in your life, Mario, who who allowed you to think you could do what you did, and who really made it happen for you? Your well, team. I mean, there was uh, there were several people that believed, you know, uh, could see. Uh, the burning passion that uh, I had. And, uh, uh, you know, after this uh, stock, I didn't want to make a career out of, you know, local stock cars. I wanted to get into single-seaters. And uh, and my one of the first ones that actually 
helped was uh, my uh, now my wife, my wife's father, uh, and uh, and his partner. They, you know, I needed to buy a midget, a midget uh, car, a single seater to 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 run a three quarter midget to run indoor races in the winter, and that's where a lot of the owners would scout drivers, you know, for the full size midgets for the regular season, and uh, and I was I bought a. a a famous car, and I made a deal with uh, with Earl uh, Earl Hoke. It was, uh, you know, my uh, Hoke is my uh, my wife's maiden name, and uh, and they invested in that car, and that's what got me going. It was another plateau, a launching pad, if you will, because uh, I won some races. I was competitive, and uh, I got noticed, and I got a, a really good ride. Uh, with the Mateka brothers in uh, Midget, which were running the ARDC Club, American Race Drivers Club, uh, which was a very prominent Midget uh, series uh, with all the icons of Midget Racing, you know, the Len Duncans, Tony Bonadier, some of the icons of Midget Racing of the era. And, uh, and that, you know, then I started winning there. And this is a team that had never won any races, but I started winning for them. And then uh, uh, a team out of Indianapolis, uh, the Rufus Gray team, uh, Rufus Gray, the individual, actually owned a sprint car, and he had uh, a sprint car where he had some of the top names, like Judd Larson, driving for him and and USAC sprint cars. He took notice, and obviously they all knew that I was interested in progressing. He gave me a ride, and he became, you know, sort of the mentor at the time, which brought me into, uh, uh, I would say, mainstream of IndyCar racing because even though it was not the top category, sprint cars is a step below the championship cars, uh, but I was driving against the top drivers because they were uh, migrating into sprint cars like A.J. Foyt, Roger McCluskey, Don mm-hmm. Branson, all the top drivers would be driving this Parnelli Jones driving in these uh, sprint cars, and I would be driving against them. And all of a sudden, I was started winning there. And uh, so, uh, but it was always, you know, like I said, certain individuals that just made the difference. And uh, and I seized the opportunity at the time. And quite honestly, uh, sometimes you get a ride because uh, the main driver is hurt. Yep. In those days, it was very popular. And that's how it was really happening. A lot of it was happening with me. Uh, but um, once I took over, you know, it seemed like uh, I held my own and and uh, and earned my, my way, you know, uh, into a solid ride. So, uh, again, it was just uh, everything was by chance. You know, there was no guarantees anywhere. You had... Uh, uh, you could have all the plans in the world, but they had no way of uh, realizing or uh, trying to predict what was going to happen anywhere. You just had to be there and seize the opportunity, and that's really the way it worked out for me. You just had to be there and seize the opportunity, and that's what so many greats and so many people who, quote, get lucky or, quote, have opportunity, they're just there. And you're there often enough, and some pretty remarkable things can happen in your life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Dreamers series with Mario Andretti continues after these words from our sponsors. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return with our conversation with Mario Andretti. And we focus in on the family and the importance of family. I want to talk about your wife because she played such an important part, Mario, and particularly in the early days where she was in some ways helping support the entire project. And how does a guy do this without a strong family background? It's got to be hard. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll tell you what, you have no idea uh, the important role uh, that she played, um, you know, in, in my career and and, uh, and, and indirectly encouraging me and backing me up because, uh, you know, Lee, uh, uh, you know, even as an individual, uh, she, I knew that she would take care of, like, you know, we got married, I got married young and, and the career was going, I had kids and I didn't have a steady job. I was relying on, uh, you know, just what I could earn racing, which, uh, you know, <laughs> it can be, yep. <laughs> it can be pretty sketchy sometimes, <laughs> right. but, but it worked and, and she worked, you know, like even to give you an idea when, um, uh, when, 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 when I was driving, you know, when I was maintaining the uh, three quarter midget that uh, her dad had financed, she was working and uh, she was pregnant and uh, on her way to one of the races, uh, she's, she's just like sobbing a little bit, you know. I said, what's, what's the matter? Deanna, she said, I just quit my job. I said, you did what? Are you, is she was seven months pregnant. <laughs> I said, you did what? How dare you? I said, how am I going to get this? Because I had to keep getting a fresh engine in there so they wouldn't smoke on the indoors. <laughs> I said, how am I going to pay for the engine? I said, you know, to keep freshening it up. She said, oh, no, this and that's so. <laughs> As you can see, she was paying for me freshening up the engines <laughs> from week to week, you know, at Bob's motorcycle shop, you know, <laughs> so, and things like that. But, uh, you know, we laugh about it, obviously, you know, but uh, she was a rock behind me throughout, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and again, you know, she, she was never a race fan. She's not a race fan today, but uh, uh, what the heck? I mean, uh, she, she had no choice, I guess, uh, you know, and she knew that this was our path, and uh, even with the kids, and uh, she just uh, always made the best of it, you know, but um, she carried the burden, you know, the family makes sure everything is running smoothly and and, uh, and at the same time supporting me by just, you know, just, just doing her thing, you know, being behind and... Uh, uh, it was never like well, what I liked. It was the stability that she created because uh, uh, she always very in, in check with her emotions, you know. And um, and it was never like uh, you know ticker tape parade. If I brought home a trophy or uh, you know like a, a black stripe on her arm, if I didn't, you know, it was right. everything was even. You know, the hug when I came home with trophy or not was always the same. So that was really uh, that was. Uh, what I needed. Well, lucky you, lucky you, Mario. Is all every man listening to this can say is lucky you. Yeah, um, for sure, and no doubt. And and you know, your wife had to live through what was then a, a very dangerous sport. So it wasn't only that the income was sketchy in the beginning, like yeah. an actor or a minor league ball player. But my goodness, those guys can't die every time they get in a car. So your wife had to deal with the the risks that you had to deal with as well. Talk about. Uh, that the burden that imposed also mario that kind of risk in your own life because we're going to talk a little about risk and you you are you're a person who puts risk into the calculus uh, like anybody who does what you do and did for a living 
Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the 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 danger aspect, you know, was uh, looming, was always there because uh, uh, obviously the sport, um, you know, in the '60s, '70s, they, you know, was certainly not as, uh, especially in the '60s, uh, uh, not as safe as it is today. And uh, and yes, uh, we we lost a lot of friends. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, she made. Uh, she was friendly with many of the wives of my buddies, and and then uh, you know my best friend when uh, Billy Foster when he when he was killed, and uh, Judd Larson, and on and on. I mean, we lost so many. Uh, Ronnie Peterson. I mean, she was uh, obviously always the one that uh, thinking. You know, when is is he going to come home? You know, this uh, uh, after this race. So uh, the spectrum of of that was always there. And it was real. Uh, there was, we were losing way too many, you know, and unfortunately, and um, and and I'm sure that, that that was always, you know, anxious moments for her as well. Uh, me as a driver, I never, you know, never dwell on that side, obviously. Uh, so I was pretty serene, but uh, but her, I could see that side of of, of her just dealing with this uncertainty. Um, you know, all the time, every week, um, had to be a, a you know tough moments, and, um, and 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 again, you know, just uh, 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 you could tell there were you know I only began to understand really what she was going through when I came out of the cockpit officially, you know, uh, because you know now watching you know my kids run and, and my grandson and so forth. Uh, all of a sudden, I have uh, you know different anxieties you know yep. that I ever experienced by driving uh, by being active myself. Yep, I think most coaches know this when, or, or or most athletes when they're playing, it's one thing. Then they watch their kids play, and it's like, oh, that's what my father was going through. Now, yeah. I, now there I get you go. it. There you go. Now yeah. I get it. You know, Mario, let, let's talk a little about the accolades, and we're, we're not going to spend too much time on the actual racing because I think what people know those things, what they don't know is the man behind the, the legend and the life behind it, and that's what we do here on this series. You were obviously were named Driver of the Year in three different decades, remarkable, Driver of the Quarter Century, and, of course, Driver of the Century in January of 2000. And, and Mario, you did this across every style of racing that there is. Talk about, what, if you could, the three most important victories in your life, the ones that, uh, that meant the most to you uh, and, to, and to your family. Well, I mean, to me, uh, probably the victory that uh, stands out the most on a personal level is uh, winning the Italian Grand Prix, um, because that's where I saw my very first, uh, you know, international big big time race, and that's where my dream really began uh, or solidified. And uh, and here we go, you know, I win. In that place, and then uh, I also clinched a world championship there in Monza. You know, so uh, that has you know personally that nothing comes close to that. Uh, the others are obviously there. Are many races, they're very. Every race has got its own uh, shining star, if you know what I mean. It's just, uh, but uh, when you look at the classics, those are the ones that. Uh, you're judged by like uh, winning Indianapolis or or uh, or winning Daytona type of thing, you know, because uh, 
again, those are the crown jewels of uh, the, the different series. Uh, so, you know, everybody would focus on that. I mean, there were there were others. For me, uh, uh, from a personal level, however, you know, here I go. I go fourth is uh, uh, winning over my son Michael on Father's Day in Portland in 1986, <laughs> you know, and yep. uh, beating him by seven one-thousandths of a second, you know, that type of thing. You know? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? And, and uh, when I look back and uh, how many times um, uh, Michael and I started on pole or how many times we were on podium together while we were even teammates, you know, those are incredible moments in my life, you know, when uh, um, uh, bright moments. Uh, when I look back, I said, we could have never designed that, you know, but it did happen. You know, how fortunate are we? How blessed we are. And blessed indeed, how blessed we were to watch, if you're old enough to have watched Mario Andretti race, and how lucky we all are, how lucky he was to have a bride like he had, always there with him. When we come back, some of our final thoughts with an American legend, part of our American Dreamers series. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. More from Mario Andretti after these messages. was one of those drivers he was one of the bars that that uh, that people would compare themselves to I mean for sure when I started driving you know if I could if I could keep up with Mario or if I could keep up with my dad I'm doing good and if I beat them then I did great this is Lee Habib and this is our American stories and you just heard from Al Unser Jr talking about how Mario Andretti set the bar in auto racing, and few figures in sports ever do that. And where we left off last segment was talking about the importance of Mario's wife, but ultimately this becomes a father-son affair. And, you know, as we learn, you can't force Mario, your sons, to do anything. Uh, you know that from personal experience with your own dad. You must have been really heartened when your own son and your own sons chose to follow you in this really risky but really exhilarating profession. Oh, indeed, yes, because uh, uh, that was their choosing. You know, it's, uh, something that I feel I made abundantly clear that, uh, you know, if you're going to pursue this, um, I said, don't do it just because you think that I may, you know, I, I may like you to do it or uh, or any any of us. Uh, I said, just got to do it for yourself. If that's really what you want to do, I said, but do it for yourself, for your own satisfaction. And uh, and then, you know, when they make their choice, ultimately, uh, then you figure, you know, it's just like what no bigger satisfaction than having uh, your own kids pursue on a business, you know, something, you know, on your own business, you know, like if you own a business, yep. you know, they pursue and, and they cultivate it and uh, make a career of it themselves. And this is a business. I mean, a lot of people don't know the, the amount of money that goes into the preparation of the car, the amount of people that are employed by the crew, uh, the sponsors. The, this is, there are a lot of jobs on the line, uh, Mario. Talk about the business of this business, because it's not just like you're some celebrity jumping into a car looking as handsome as you always looked, and that's that. I mean, this is work, Mario. 
Well, I mean, yeah, it's a complex business, no question. I mean, it's a uh, truly a team sport, actually. I mean, uh, as a driver, uh, you have to have a piece of equipment worthy of uh, bringing results. And who can make it that? I mean, uh, then it's got to be a, a lot of people involved, engineers, mechanics, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, um, again, uh, there's uh, a lot that goes behind it, the strategies that go behind it. Um, and, um, and again, uh, uh, I, I was always, I only owned a team and drove for myself in one year in 1968. I didn't want to do that because I wanted to move around to different disciplines. I just wanted to drive. But the driver is, is a driver, however, always had, um, input in the team. I wasn't just a contracted driver, okay, drive and shut up, you know, and bring right. us home a trophy. I always was very integrated within the team because um, I wanted to have a say as to my who my engineers was and suggestions, blah, 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 and uh, and to have that type of harmony, you know, within the team. And, and that's the part that actually really worked for me very well. And uh, I draw for some of the you know the the icons in, in our sport over the years in different disciplines and i was very very obviously this is what gave me the opportunity to bring home some results you know it wasn't always uphill for you too i mean there were dry spells and by the way athletes experience this too mario how did you handle that how did you cope i mean when things just aren't firing so to speak on all cylinders how do you keep it together? How do you keep positive, especially with all the expectations? And actually, yeah. probably some people rooting for you to fail. Yeah, no question. I mean, there's, you, you've experienced all that. If you're in it for the long pull, believe me, you're going to have the ups and downs. And, uh, and that, I mean, the, the, when you're down, that's really what tests uh, your, uh, your will, you know, to just pull out of your willpower and uh, your mindset. You know, all of those elements, they're so important because, uh, again, it's, <laughs> it's not going to be always a better roses. When you're at the top, uh, you know darn well that it's not going to last and you fight like crazy, you know, to, uh, to try to maintain the momentum, whatever it is that keeps you there. And then, but, uh, when it starts going the other way, you know, uh, you can't dwell on the negative. You got to start, keep searching, keep searching and uh, maintain a positive attitude, you know, to pull out of it. I want to talk to you about class and uh, income, that is. If you had tried to pursue uh, racing in Europe, uh, as opposed to your, your, I think, good fortune in coming to America and to a place like Nazareth, would a Mario Andretti's career have been less probable in a class system like Europe than a place like America where, really, almost anybody can get anywhere in, in this country? Talk about that. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because uh, quite honestly, if uh, uh, if we would have stayed in Europe, I, I don't see how in the world uh, I could have uh, ever, you know, especially within uh, the uh, the age limit, you know, to take advantage of a career, how I could have got started. So uh, I always say that uh, the negative of what happened. Uh, during the war, the displacement that we experienced as a family and everything was a negative, but it became a huge positive by having the opportunity to come to the United States because uh, I, I feel that I'm a true, true example of the American dream. 
uh, I don't see how anything could have happened to me unless we, we came to the States. Even under the environment that my dad had me under, you know, because of his, uh, you know, this farming and so, I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I had no, you know, even as a youngster, I just despised that type of thing. You know, that's not what, uh, you know, set the fire in me. And, um, uh, you know, we loved uh, uh, my Uncle Bruno, you know, who was, you know, my mother's brother, you know, who was, uh, you know, he was... Uh, an aviator in the aviation, he was in, in, had motorcycles, he had, you know, it was that type of a guy, you know. And uh, so there was something that, um, uh, as I say, just if we would have remained there, I probably, uh, I don't know, I probably would have become a plumber or something. Yeah. Now, we love asking folks uh, just a few questions, Mara, just personal ones. Um, your biggest regret, that is the decision you made that you wish you could have pulled back in your life. Well, you know, uh, I'm not sure that uh, I have any regrets, quite honestly. Um, I, you know, you could always do something better, you mm -hmm. know, by looking at it now. Okay, I might have made a better decision uh, a different time. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, when um, at the end of... Uh, uh, you know, my Formula One career with Lotus, uh, I had a couple of opportunities, one to go either with McLaren or Alfa Romeo, and I went with my heart. You know, I went with Alfa Romeo because, you know, I had a friend, uh, engineer there and so forth, and I thought Alfa Romeo was, was ready to uh, to spring, you know, into the uh, to the top uh, in Formula One, and, and instead I... I and I could have gone with McLaren. I could have probably won another ch world championship with McLaren. So, you know, those are some things you call it a mistake, call yeah. it a miscalculation. Yeah, you could, you know, now that I have a chance to revisit. But overall, Lee, I have no regrets. I have no regrets whatsoever. You know, the, the, the positive way, way overcome the negatives. Uh, and so I... Again, no regrets. That's great. What gives you, Mario, at this stage of your life, your deepest sense of fulfillment? The deepest sense of fulfillment is to be able to, with uh, everything that's going on in my career and uh, the distractions and everything, to have been able to keep the family together throughout. Yeah. And, and faith, does that play a role in your life, Mario? I mean, we know you're Catholic, but uh, talk about that, that part of your life. Faith does. Uh, and... Uh, Again, uh, not just the fact that um, we had a priest in our family that was clergy, uh, and uh, that was never anything that was really pushed on us. As a matter of fact, my uncle priest, I love that man more than anyone. Uh, he was so such a modern thinker and everything, even then. Uh, and uh, it was just that, but that uh, there was another chaplain in our camp, Lorenzo Tamberlini, who... Uh, Really, uh, somehow, without forcing things, uh, like uh, instill certain values, you know, that you maintain and keep, and, and always knowing that uh, you can't do things alone. You know, you need some help, whether it's, you know, it's, it's an abstract from upstairs or something. You know, you have to invoke something, believe in, in something, and I do. Uh, and, and many times I said, you know, I need some help here, please, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and somehow it, it, it works for you. It always did and it always will. And last but not least, Mario, tell us about a hobby, a pastime, 
uh, a secret passion that the audience might not expect Mario Andretti to have? Well, hobbies, I mean, that's uh, what we do. I just love uh, recreation, and as you can imagine, uh, I am fortunate we have a, a place uh, up in the Poconos here. I have a lake, and, and I have uh, every toy imaginable, you know, ATVs, I have boats, I have uh, ultralight, uh, we play tennis, we water ski. I just love all the things that, you know, they're energetic, and uh, you ought to come up there. I'll get you tired really fast. You you have a deal, Mario. You know, one thing I think never leaves some some men is the thrill of speed and the thrill of competition, and that it doesn't ever leave you uh, as we as you get older if that's who you are and it's baked into your DNA. Mario, I, I so appreciate you uh, taking the time, and I will most definitely take you up on the offer. By the way, your first victory... Uh, was in a place called Teaneck, New Jersey, and that's where I was born. I was born in Holy Name Hospital in Teaneck, New Jersey. So. Yeah, it was a big victory. I had a hundred lapper there with um, in my three-quarter midget. Yeah. Well, I, thank you so much for joining us, Mario. Mario Andretti uh, for the hour. Thank you so much, sir. It's my pleasure. <laughs> you bet. Mario Andretti, American Dreamers, and go to ouramericannetwork.org. dot org.